Well, let me review with you a little bit about last Sunday. And uh, of course, we're continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we are uh, uh, hopefully learning quite a bit. And as we continue through this time together, uh, trust that you've, you've received some new insights into this uh, Gospel. But uh, last Sunday, we talked about the good old phrase, are we there yet? Because Mark chapter 13 was all about how to be ready when the end times come, when Jesus comes back. And that whole chapter, Jesus uh, laid it all out. And it, the emphasis, again, was not necessarily um, watch out for it and all that, and you try to figure out the signs and see when it's going to happen, but it was more of how to live while we wait for Christ's return. And we learned four lessons in this, and one of them was to watch out where we put our trust. Watch out where we put our trust. We can put our trust in our church attendance. We can put our trust in, in, in our, our heritage, our Christian heritage, our, our, our lineage of, of, of uh, walking in Christ. We can also put our trust in our own goodness, but all that's going to fail. None of that really matters. What matters is what we have done with Jesus Christ. And so careful where you put your trust. We also learned a lesson in, in that we should avoid setting times and dates for Jesus' return. And you could probably recall some moments and situations where that was done, where somebody thought they knew the exact time and date and here it's going to happen. And so far, uh, it, they've been wrong. <laughs> and so uh, we need to avoid setting times and dates for Jesus' return. He tells us, Jesus tells us that no one knows when the end time will be. So how do we expect to figure it out when God has intentionally made it unknowable? So Jesus was warning us not to waste our time trying to figure it out. Now, it might be a little entertaining uh, to see if people really know. Uh, but again, our focus isn't on those things. Our focus is to prepare ourselves, be ready. A third lesson we learned out of that chapter, Mark, uh, of Mark, uh, chapter 13 of Mark, is that God is in control. God is in control. We can rely on God. No matter what we're going through, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter how bad things seem, God is moving everything toward completion, toward fulfillment, because He is in control. And when we stand in front of people who demand a, uh, that we give an account of our faith, God will be there for us, giving us the words. The Holy Spirit will be our comfort. He will be our guide. And uh, when the going gets tough, God may not make things easy, but He will give us the strength and encouragement to keep on going. And then the fourth lesson we learned out of last Sunday was that we should always be prepared for Jesus to come again. We shouldn't be hung up on the signs and stuff, but we, we need to be prepared and ready. We should be anxiously awaiting and eagerly anticipating Christ's return. But Jesus warns us that He has left us here with a purpose to accomplish when He returns, He wants to find that we've been faithful to His cause. So yes, Jesus is coming back. He's, he's going he's gonna to return. That's for sure. When? We don't know. So we should be ready. And while we're preparing ourselves, we should also be preparing others by sharing the gospel, by letting them know that they can have a relationship with Christ as well. So that's what we learned last Sunday. This Sunday, today, we're going to be looking at chapter 14 of Mark. And uh, we're going to learn some lessons from the Last Supper. And as we uh, do that, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to start with verse 22 and go through 31 on this. And uh, we'll, take, uh, we'll, we'll take that portion of Scripture as we go. 
But we know we all we all like a good meal, right? We had a senior luncheon. It was good to have that gathering again. Susan cooked it for us again. It was like old times. She was right next to me, uh, making sure I ate what I needed to eat and everything else. So it was like old times again. John was close by too, and he he forgot to sit further away from Susan, so he didn't get caught by, you know. But Susan was just in rare form, and it was good. It was been a while, but it was some good food and some good fellowship together, and uh, it was it was a good time. In fact. If you're interested in that and you, you were signed up, you couldn't make it or whatever, we are looking to continue this and we're going to gather together. I'll, I'll work, out, uh, work out the details with Stephanie on this, but we're going to schedule this and have it more of a potluck kind of style. And what, like you see going around here, the clipboard going around, we'll have that kind of sign up for the seniors who want to come and join us and uh, bring certain things. So and I'll, I'll let you know the details though as they develop further on this as I talk with Stephanie about that and figure some things out. But good meals, we like a good meal. I know uh, Mark Perky liked a good meal. He liked to meet people at restaurants uh, for his calling and, and uh, that, that was kind of his uh, trademark in <laughs> talking with people. I recently read uh, what was served at some of history's most memorable events at uh, President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural ball in 1865. Dinner was served at midnight on a 250-foot buffet table. The menu item <coughs> included beef tongue and gelatin and calf's foot belly. That's calf's foot jelly, sorry, not belly. And uh, two problems with that, though. One, the time, midnight. <laughs> okay, really? I, I, I'm sleeping by then, I think. But midnight and the menu, I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe you guys like that stuff. Oh, Lord bless you, but uh, I just don't... Uh, haven't, uh, and I shouldn't probably say that from the pulpit. Last time I did that about peeps, I got a bunch of peeps, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Anyway, the first meal on the moon in 1969 included bacon squares, sugar cookies, and coffee. Well, that's a little better. <laughs> it looks like it has all, all the food groups too, right? <laughs> well, if you could have one last meal <clears throat> before you would die, what would you eat? And I thought about that. I thought, I don't know what I'd eat. I, I don't think I, I would care. <laughs> My mind would be on other things. But uh, there are some people, though, we know of that, that apparently are documented what they ate. Cleopatra, she downed a handful of figs before she died, for whatever reason. Before breathing his last, Napoleon Bonaparte ate liver and bacon chops, sautéed kidneys, garlic toast, and roasted tomatoes. Okay. James Dean he, he ate a slice of apple pie with a glass of milk right before he died. Elvis Presley gobbled up four scoops of ice cream and six chocolate chip cookies before suffering a fatal heart attack. Let that be a reminder to all of you. Uh, Wal uh, and then Walter Legrand, you probably don't know him very well, but in, he was, before being executed in 1999 for a murder that he committed, he ate six fried eggs, 16 strips of bacon, there's a theme there with the bacon thing going on, uh, one large serving of hash browns, a pint of pineapple sherbet, a breakfast steak, a cup of ice, 7-Up, Dr. Pepper, Coke, hot sauce, coffee, two sugar packs, and four Rolaids. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. And on the night before he was crucified, of course, Jesus gathered with his closest followers to eat his last meal. And this supper was rich in spiritual meaning with symbolism that goes back 
to the first Passover. And this annual meal comm commemorated the defining moment in Israel's history and was celebrated the same way every time, every year. Jesus was set on celebrating this supper and was eager to explain the meaning behind His final meal. We read about it in Luke chapter 22, and verse 15, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That phrase, earnestly desired, literally means I have desired with desire. So it's, it's intense. And at its heart, the Passover supper was designed to celebrate the temporary deliverance that came through the blood of a spotless lamb. And Jesus now begins a, a new meal that celebrates the deliverance that comes through the blood of the sinless lamb of God. Now, we just had a discussion about this last Sunday, and Moses was talking with me about it, and he asked, have you ever considered doing maybe a Seder meal? And I thought, yes, uh, we, I have done that, not here, but I've done that, uh, not me personally, but I've been involved with it uh, at Lubish Center. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd be open to having that, so we might uh, plan that for next time. This time, it's a little sh short notice to be able to do something like that, but... Uh, it's an incredible event and moment to see all the symbolism involved in how Jesus comes through in all this, and it's, it's really incredible. If you've never been part of that, uh, I encourage you to be part of it in some way, maybe this, uh, this year, um, I, but uh, next year, though, we will plan something like that to be able to uh, participate in those ways. Um, but let me, let me just talk to you a little bit about that. In as we as we go through this portion of scripture, because I think it's important for us to see some of the things that are going on here. But each element of the Passover meal had symbolic significance going on. The unleavened bread represented the the hurriedness or the haste uh, uh, with which uh, Israel left Egypt. Uh, the bitter herbs are part of this too, and reminded them of the pain of their slavery. Uh, a a paste-like puree was prepared to look like clay to remind them of their forced labor. And the Passover lamb, of course, helped them remember God's merciful passing over, and the wine symbolized the blood sprinkled on the beam and the doorposts. And it's likely Jesus would have held up four different cups during this meal that they're all gathered with, each representing one of the I wills uh, from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Like the cup, of, there's the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under, uh, from the, and the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you from slavery. And as a way to recall the the ten plagues, ten drops of wine were poured out on a plate during the meal as well. And then there's the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then there's the cup of praise or thanksgiving. I will take you to my people to be my people, and I will be your God. So the Lord has always been passionate to sanctify, to deliver, to redeem, and become our God. The supper began with Jesus as the heavenly host pronouncing a, a benediction over the first cup. And then a table was brought in with the roasted lamb. And immediately after this, all the dishes were removed and the second cup of wine would be filled. And at this point, it was customary for a son to ask his father this question, how is this night distinguished from all other nights? And in response, taking on the role of the Father, Jesus would have recited the history of Israel. The dishes were then put back on the table, and Jesus would have taken the symbols in succession, starting with the Passover lamb, then the bitter herbs, 
and then the unleavened bread, and as he briefly explained the importance of each one. Now, everything was going according to the Passover plan. They're all there gathered, and things were going, and they were very familiar with what was happening, of course, and the disciples knew the, the drill and could probably recite every word as well. And then in Mark chapter 14, if you look back there with me, verse 22, everything changes. <laughs> and as they were eating, it says there in that verse, verse 22, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, Jesus, as the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and now he holds up the bread and blesses it. We get the word eulogy from the original word, which means to speak well of. And Jesus likely gave this common blessing over the, over the bread. Blessed are you, Lord our God, who brings forth bread from the earth. And what Jesus says next, though, no doubt stunned <laughs> the group there. Take, this is my body. So what was that? <laughs> what, uh, hold on, Jesus, you... You went off script here. Something, something's going on here. This wasn't what was supposed to happen for the supper, was it? And with these five words, Jesus broke from a tradition that, that had lasted for centuries. And before they could fully recover from this shocking statement, and they're probably looking at each other going, oh, is there, what's going on here? We read in the next verse, verse 23, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, Jesus blesses the bread and then gives thanks for the, for the cup. And this, this Greek word, eucharistio, is what we, what we get the Eucharist from. And uh, this is likely the third cup, commonly called the cup of redemption or the cup of thanksgiving. And notice that they all drank of it. Judas was already gone, but the other 11 all drank from the cup as it was passed around. And remember what Jesus said to James and John in Mark chapter 10, verse 39, when they were jockeying for the, the top spot in the kingdom? He said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And that word cup was a symbol of God's judgment and joy, of His wrath and also His redemption. And the script for the supper then is back on track. And then in verse 24, Jesus startles them again when He says this. Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. <laughs> so the disciples are again, hold on, what, what's going on? I thought we were, we were back on the script. Now, we're, what did you say? <laughs> the wine in the cup was produced through violence as the grapes were crushed to extract that juice. The cup re represented his violent and bloody death, which would launch the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah Chapter 31, verse 31, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Biblical covenants were always approved by blood. From its core, the word covenant means to cut. And blood inaugurated the old covenant at, at Mount Sinai when he, we read that Moses threw blood on the altar and, and then splashed it on the people in Exodus chapter 24. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, establishes the importance of blood sacrifice. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Verse 19 declares that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Old Testament was filled with rules, it was filled with guidelines and, and religious rituals, and now God relates to us through relationship. And don't miss this. The angel of death only passed over those homes where the blood of the lambs had been applied. And in the same way, unless you have applied the blood of the lamb to your life, you will die in your sins. Let me clarify a couple things, though, about the Lord's Supper. Now, I think uh, we need to understand because there are a lot of different ideas out there about it. First, there's this uh, $50 seminary word called transubstantiation. <laughs> oh, boy, there you go. Basically, that big word means the change where the substance, uh, and not necessarily the appearance, but the substance of the bread and wine becomes Christ's real presence, His body and blood. The bread and cups serve, though, as memorials of the Lord's death. They don't mystically become the body and the blood of Jesus. None of the disciples would have thought that somehow the bread and the wine were turned into the body and the blood of Jesus. After all, he was still in the room, and he was holding the bread and the wine in his hands. And when they saw Jesus hold these elements, they would, they would have immediately recognized them as tangible representations of a, of a far deeper reality because the Passover meal was filled with word pictures explained by the host of the meal. Even prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel used sermon props and acted out parables as part of their preaching. So here we have Jesus in the same manner. I think another thing we need to understand in all this too is that Jesus, there's the thought out there that Jesus is re-sacrificed every time we do this. We are remembering His death, not repeating the sacrifice. And some of you might come from a tradition that teaches that Jesus is sacrificed again and again through the celebration of the Mass. Scripture, though, is very clear that Jesus has completed His sacrificial work on our behalf. Nothing more needs to be done except to repent and believe that He died as a substitute for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. doesn't have to happen again. It's been done. Jesus then looks out into the future and He uses the power of an oath in verse 25 of Mark chapter 14. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So at this point, He's likely looking at the fourth cup of praise but doesn't drink it. Jesus has given us the, 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 the assurance of the, kingdom, uh, the coming kingdom of God where believers will be assembled for, for another meal with the Master, which is portrayed in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. It says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus not only changes things up at this meal, He also says some, some things that messes up the disciples. <laughs> Notice next, that He gives two predictions with a promise in the middle. Here, here are the, the predictions. You will all desert Me. <laughs> Verse 28, He says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now Judas has left to do his deed, and now Jesus tells the disciples that they will all desert Him. 
And that word for fall away means to take offense and to fall into sin. So Jesus is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 here, but He adds the words, I will, in this, referring to God Himself. And in a real sense, it's not Judas or the religious leaders, or you or me, that killed Christ. It was the Father Himself. The word for strike means to put to death, and scattered means to be dispersed and, and, and separated like chaff. And if you fast forward to Mark chapter 14, verse 50, you'll see how this prediction was fulfilled, where it says, And they all left Him and fled. You will all desert Me. The other prediction that we have in, here in Scripture, too, is that Peter will deny Me. So in light of the prediction that the disciples will desert Jesus, in verse 29, it says, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> and Peter is agitated because in his pride, he thinks he's better than the others. They might bail on Jesus, but Peter believes he will never fail the Lord. I will always be there with you, not me, Lord. Because all of us are prone to pride. Let's consider these uh, pride passages that I want to share with you today. Maybe it will remind you of some things. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So Peter thinks he's the best. So Jesus tells him he will do worse than the rest. In verse 30, he tells him this. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. They will desert one time, but he, Peter, will deny three times before the sun comes up. And in verse 31, Peter proudly protests this prediction. But he said, said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, Peter is using the strongest form of denial in the Greek language. The word emphatically means to be exceedingly vehement, uh, to protest over and above. I will not. And maybe you've been there before where someone said, yeah, you're going to do this. No, I'm not going to do it. Maybe you haven't gotten to that stage of emphatically, but uh, you might have an idea where Peter was at. He wasn't going to, this was not going to happen. And, you know, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves in our actions, don't we? We might say, you know, no, no, we're not, or yes, we will. And um, we get ahead of our actions. <laughs> and our, sometimes our actions betray us. I, I can recall a time when one of our kids, uh, we were at a, uh, I think it was an indoor soccer event, and this was before we were up here at Happy Valley. And our, our boys were really little at that time. And uh, so the girls aren't part of this. So they're, you know, they're not in this. So our, our boys are part of this. And one of them was invited to go over to the vending machine and get an orange juice. Oh, man, he was so excited about this. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, this uh, person from, from, from the church invited him to come on over, and he would go ahead and get him an orange juice. And he was jumping up and down, ready to do this and get it, and put the money in, and it came out, and... 
he grabbed the, the glass jar and he was like, yes, 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 yes. And as he was jumping up and down, the glass jar slipped out of his hand and went crash into the floor. Orange juice and glass all over the place. He's like, <laughs> he got a little sad about that. But he got a little, a little bit too eager of having that orange juice. A little bit too excited about that glass jar of orange juice that he could have. And it just went all to pieces with him. I think the same thing with Peter. He just kind of a little too eager, too little far ahead, and saying, "This is what I'm going to. This will never happen." And if you flip over to Mark chapter 14, verse 72, you see how Peter got ahead of himself and was a bit too eager with his promises. It says, "And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, "Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times." And he broke down and wept. Peter will deny me. Then there's the promise in all this. Jesus predicts that those closest to him will desert and deny him. But notice the promise in verse 28, that their fails will not be fatal. But after I am raised, it says in verse 28, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So they'll, they'll deny him. They put to death, but then here's the promise. This is the fifth prediction of His resurrection in the Gospel of Mark, if you're keeping track, by the way. But I wonder if they could see the grace on His face when He said He would reconnect with them in Galilee, going before them, like a shepherd, leading a sheep as well. It's likely that Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 12 was behind this promise. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 12, it says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I like how one pastor described uh, how, how Jesus came. He came for deserters and deniers. He came for sinners and strugglers. He came for the proud and pompous, for the reprehensible and re rebellious, for the liars and for the lost, and for those who bail and for those who fail. <laughs> Jesus came for everyone. And as far as we know, this memorial meal was celebrated appropriately in the early church, Acts chapter 2. You can see that. Until, but until then we get to the, uh, the account of the church in Corinth. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter, one, or chapter 11, actually, is where we can see four communion caveats that I want to share with you. Four communion caveats. One we find here in verses 23 through 25, and we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by the way. One is to remember. We need to remember. We need to look back. In verses 23 through 25 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul received these instructions from Jesus himself. He said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, this is, uh, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And twice in this passage, we're told to remember what Jesus did for us. So we need to remember, looking back, because many of us have spiritual amnesia, right? We get, we get to moments like this, maybe on a Sunday or maybe during your devotional time, you go, that is a good thing I need to put into practice. And then you need to be reminded of that later on because you forget about it. 
uh, and you work on it because it needs to become a habit and it needs to get ingrained. So we need to be reminded. We need to look back. A second caveat here for communion is that we need to rejoice. We need to look forward. Look forward. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we're to look back and remember the cross and also look forward to the crown. And to proclaim means to announce publicly, to declare, to publish, to perpetuate. We need to bring forth this news. The bread and the cup tell the story of redemption and help our faith fast forward to the culmination of history. We eat and drink now in anticipation of a glorious banquet to come. So we anticipate, we look forward. So it's a time of rejoicing. A third caveat to this communion time also too is to repent. We look within. Verses 27 and 28, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So once we remember by looking back and rejoicing by looking forward, we can't help but look inside and see our need to repent. Are we right with God? Are all things good with, with our relationship with Christ? And Paul, again, is cautioning us about approaching the Lord's table in, in a trite manner. You need to come and, and realize this, this is a solemn, solemn moment and being able to realize what, what God has done for us. And then a fourth caveat here to this communion time is to uh, reconcile, to reconcile. So we need to look around. We need to look around. In verses 28 and 29, as well as 33 and 34 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So, uh, communion time. Not just to fill you up. I trust you don't trust. We don't think this is going to fill you up. But if you're hungry, then you eat at home. Eat somewhere else. This is not a time of, of a meal here of, of communion. This is a time of remembrance. But to reconcile, to look around. Let's make sure we're living in union with those we're in community with. And we could call communion our common union. We have that together. We have a common union together with this. And Jesus has made us one, so we need to act like it. <laughs> we're one body. And this is stated clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, where it says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So shortly after this supper, Jesus poured out His heart to His Father. And you notice that the number one thing on His mind was unity for His followers, as seen in John chapter 17, verse 11. It says, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I remember uh, as a staff person at uh, Tillicum Camp, you know, over eight miles northwest of Newburgh, they had a high adventure camp part, and we participated in that. I brought youth to that, but I also participated in it as a staff person as well. And there were different initiatives that had to be done. 
to encourage teamwork. One of them was the trolley, where there were two big old uh, um, posts that were on the ground, and there were ropes every every two feet on, on that, drilled it through the post there, laid on the side, and uh, you could lift up on the rope there, and you could lift that board up. But you had to have your feet on that board, and you had the ropes in your hand. And everyone else in your line also, too, had the same thing going on. So if you wanted to move somewhere, everyone had to do the same thing at the same time. Otherwise, you're going, okay, lift, and you're going, oh, okay, who didn't lift their leg? You know, everyone had their weight over there. And all it took was one person not joining in in the right direction, and you couldn't lift that side uh, to move forward. There's also one called Jacob's Ladder, and it was one that was a vertical, basically a, a vertical post. They're all up above, a horizontal way, tied with cables. And uh, one post was at level probably about maybe eight feet. And then another one was at, uh, uh, from this post was about four feet. And then it gradually increased as it went up six feet, eight feet, 10 feet. So from the, from the ground, it was already eight feet up. And they were hanging down by cables from trees. And so you had to do this in, in, a, in a pair. And one person had to lift the other person up to the first post. And they grabbed onto it, got all around. And of course, you're on a belay line of all this, okay? So if you fall, you're not gonna die. But uh, they uh, were all on this. And, and so they lifted up your partner onto this next, on that first rung. And then you all both got up and stood on that rung to get to the next one. You continued, but you couldn't get to the very top without help because those boards got further and further apart. And so you needed teamwork to be able to get the job done. Of course, there's the wall, there's a 10 foot, 12 foot wall, uh, board wall that you had to help people up over it and you couldn't get up over yourself. So those who are on top of that had to reach down and help them up to get your whole team over. There's another one called the spider web, which was these uh, bungees all around between two trees. It looked like a spider web and you had to get people through the holes and make sure that they got through the, the holes of the, the, the bungees and uh, not touching the bungee. And you had to do that as a team effort. Couldn't get that accomplished unless you worked as a team. You also had a balancing deck. It was a big old eight foot so deck that had planks this way and it was balancing in the middle. And the idea was to try to get that whole thing balanced. And so when you got in the middle, it was no problem because the fulcrum's right there. But then uh, we had the, the group step back. The, the idea was to try to get on the very end of the, uh, the platform and keep it balanced. And so they had to figure that out as a team and they couldn't talk. So there's all these different things that they had to figure out and try to do it teamwork-wise. And when they accomplished that, they were able to accomplish it as a team. They had to be unified in this. They had to work together on this. And each of those activities, they functioned best when they served as a team. And we as a church must be eager to maintain unity among ourselves because it can easily unravel in any setting, any congregation. We're all susceptible to thinking that our views are the right ones. We are all susceptible to that, and we need to be careful and be on guard. But what better example have we had than these last couple of years when we're, we've heard all sorts of, uh, uh, of viewpoints on things, and people think they're right on these different things, and there's a lot of people who think they're right on the different sides of the, of, of, of the issues. But we come from different backgrounds, come from different cultures, we have, having different preferences politically, pandemically, and musically, <laughs> but we are one in Christ. Every believer has the same salvation, the same spirit, and the same scriptures. And so 
we must guard and maintain this unity. Communion is the great uniter because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We should all continue to work at maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're all part of one body and no one is better than anyone else. Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, told of the time she took 10 days to prepare a series of messages for a speaking engagement. On the first day, she sat down with her notebook and her Bible, and nothing came to her. The same thing happened on the second day. She then began reading a pamphlet on how revival is related to repentance. Someone had challenged her to read it three times. And she said the first time she read it, she felt smug. The second time, she felt spiritual. The third time she read it, she broke down in sorrow. That led to seven days of confessing her sins. And she said she repented of sins she didn't even know she had. Pride, anger, judgmentalism, prayerlessness. They were just a few of them. But it was after this that she sensed a, a spiritual surge and was able to prepare the messages for her speaking engagement. Sometimes the lid just needs to be popped off in our life to allow God to get in and open up all this stuff that needs to be confessed. And sometimes, to get that lid popped off, we need to sit before God and ask Him, is there any offensive way in me, Lord? <laughs> Show it to me so I can give it back to you and let you take care of it. So do you have any sins you need to confess before we take communion today? Is there anyone you need to ask forgiveness from? Because it's not just a, a vertical relationship, it's a horizontal one too. We need to be good with one another as well. Any, anyone you need to extend forgiveness to at all. See, in the Bible, dining together signified two things, appropriation and participation. By eating the bread and drinking from the cup, we're saying that we have received redemption and we're declaring that we are in community with one another. And also, too, with the Lord. When we come together and do this. The worship team is going to come on up. They're going to lead us in a song before communion time. That I hope helps us focus on what Jesus did for us at the cross. And as we come together and do this, just let God kind of minister to your heart as well. If there's something that the Holy Spirit brings up into your life, be in agreement with it and let, let God work in your life. But as we sing this song, uh, sing along with us as well as the Lord leads you to do so. But uh, again, be ministered by the Lord in this time.